Well, hello and welcome. It is Tuesday, December 5th, 1 o'clock here on the East Coast. And uh, gosh, let me think about this. Uh, 10 o'clock on the West Coast. And I say 10 o'clock on the West Coast because we have a uh, special guest joining us today from the West Coast. And of course, you may be somewhere else in an entirely different time zone. Uh, and that's awesome. It might even be Saturday or not Saturday. I'm thinking about Thursday here. It might already be uh, Wednesday for you uh, if you're over in the Southern Hemisphere, as often we get guests uh, that are joining us from New Zealand and Australia. So uh, welcome. Uh, this is, of course, not our usual time for our uh, Alliance Against Seclusion Restraint Live. Uh, we are here because we have a special program and something that's kind of timely and relevant. So we wanted to uh, kind of add an extra uh, bonus ASR Live for you. If you are already uh, joined us live, and I see a couple of people have already popped on, uh, you probably know the drill here, which is tell us in the chat who you are and where you're from, because we love to see where people are joining us from and who they are. Uh, of course, my name is Guy Stevens. I'm the founder and executive director of the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint. Uh, if you're not familiar with the Alliance, we were formed uh, not quite five years ago, where we're headed on the five-year mark here uh, very, very quickly. Uh, but we were formed uh, really initially with a strong focus on the issues of restraint and seclusion happening in schools across the country. Uh, of course, our, our focus has continued to uh, look at things like restraint and seclusion, but it's even broader than that. It's not only restraint and seclusion, it's restraint, seclusion, suspension, expulsion, corporal punishment. Uh, and it's not just in schools that we're concerned. We're concerned about these things happening anywhere that they might be happening. And we're also concerned about the many things that are often done to children and young people in the name of behavior. Uh, and of course, that leads us to have a, a strong interest in a lot of different uh, settings and situations. Uh, many of you may know that we are uh, strongly uh, kind of connected and allied with uh, organizations that are that are looking at things happening in, the, in what's called the troubled teen industry. And uh, today's uh, guest is going to be talking to us a little bit about that as well. Uh, so at any rate, our, our vision and our work is really about, uh, you know, well, I think making the world a better place, but moving away from many of the things that we're doing to people in the name of behavior and really trying to do better. We advocate for trauma-informed and neuroscience-aligned approaches. Uh, it's about relationship-driven and collaborative approaches to, to working with other humans. So as I mentioned, uh, really excited about our guest here today. And this is a special program that we've kind of moved into the schedule just because uh, I thought it would be uh, something really great to talk about because there's a, a new podcast series that's out uh, that I wanted to, to bring to your attention. Uh, so I'm really excited to have uh, Margaret Mayer joining us today. And I'm going to be talking a little bit about uh, Margaret in a second and give you a little bit more background. But we're going to be talking about a uh, podcast series uh, that uh, Margaret has created and, uh, you know, why that's something you might be interested in, in learning and uh, listening to. I do want to let you know that, as always, these sessions are um, available live, and we stream them live on LinkedIn, on Facebook, and on YouTube. Uh, you can go back after the fact and listen to a recording on any of those platforms. And we also make them available as an audio-only podcast. So that's um, always exciting, because if you want to listen on the go, you can just go to Apple Podcast or Spotify, uh, and you can listen wherever you might want to listen. Uh, I do want to let you know we've got a lot of things coming in store for you in 2024. It's hard to believe, but the new year is right around the corner as we we kind of round into December here. Uh, and we're actually going to be doing some things in addition to having, we actually have almost completely booked our 2024 schedule. We've got a lot of amazing guests lined up for the upcoming year. Uh, we're also going to be getting um, some support from a number of 
advertisers who are, are going to be helping to support our work to create this podcast. Uh, and in fact, uh, in the new year, we'll be introducing some of those sponsors that are helping us to, you know, bring this to you. And uh, that really is something that's meaningful to me because, uh, you know, this is work that, of course, you know, takes time and resources and 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 money to create. And uh, it's great that we've got people that are going to be supporting our work as we're moving forward. Uh, so with all that said, let's go ahead and introduce to you our special guest that we have with us here today. And I've just magically brought Margaret up on the screen. But let me tell you a little bit about Margaret. And uh, then we were, we're going to get started having uh, a conversation. So Margaret is a 24-year-old artist and activist uh, originally from Rochester, New York, and of course, right now in California, I found that out. Uh, in uh, 2020, Margaret became aware of the troubled teen industry uh, after hearing horror stories from her friends who had been trafficked to private for-profit religious residential school uh, located near her hometown, uh, which was called Freedom Village, USA. Uh, this led her to research and further investigate uh, independent Baptist homes, uh, through networking, she connected with more survivors from Freedom Village uh, and joined them in launching the We Warn Them campaign in September 2021. Uh, she's passionate about storytelling and building genuine connections with people. Uh, and uh, we're here to talk a little bit about uh, a new podcast series that, that Margaret's created. So, Margaret, welcome. Really excited to have you here today. And yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, thank, thanks for joining us. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about something you've been working on, but probably you know talk a little bit more uh, broadly about some of these issues and kind of what brought you into that. Uh, I do want to let people that are watching live know, um, please, in the chat, let us know who you are and where you're joining us from. Uh, it's always great to see, uh, you know, that we often have people joining us from around the world. Uh, it's often great to see, you know, kind of where people are connecting and, and listening to from today. So uh, let's get into this. Um, you describe yourself as an artist and an activist and, of course, a, a storyteller. And, uh, you know, the the troubled teen industry, uh, of course, is something that I'm I'm pretty familiar with now. But uh, there's a time in my life that I would not even have imagined something like the troubled teen industry existed. And it sounds like from your intro there that perhaps you were there as well and, and wouldn't have imagined that there was this this kind of thing that we we refer to as a troubled teen industry. So for listeners and viewers that, that might be um, joining us that might not have heard this term before, and uh, once you once you see it and you know it, it's hard to imagine somebody not having heard about this, but what do we mean when we say the troubled teen industry? What is the troubled teen industry? Yeah, so I like to start by saying it's a multi-billion dollar underground network in America that is for-profit residential programs. And I kind of describe it as like a tree. So if it's like troubled teen industry in the middle, all the branches are like conversion therapy, wilderness therapy camps, uh, religious boarding schools, behavior modification camps, um, and some military schools sometimes can fall under that branch, but essentially the common thread is that they're all private and oftentimes not regulated. Um, so that's why some of these extreme, um, stories and things happen inside of them. <laughs> and, 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 you know, just going to the, the, you know, uh, you know, the trouble teen, why is it called the trouble teen industry? What, what's, what's the, you know, the, this network that you described, like, why does it exist? What was the intent of it? And, uh, you know, why troubled teen? What, what, what is that all about? Right. I mean, I would also almost argue that sometimes the name troubled teen um, 
industry is problematic because right. it's putting the focus on that the kids are troubled and that's who that's how they're marketing in it right is that if your kid is troubled and that could range from a wide variety of things maybe your kid smoked weed for the first time or maybe they actually have a juvenile charge or something that's the kids that are being sent here hmm. but from my interviews and when i started learning about this what i noticed a lot of the times was that the kids weren't as much troubled as they were just coming from financially disadvantaged areas mm -hmm. coming from cities that are over policed. Um, and so, yeah, I would, I would almost. Yeah, no, no, I, I, I appreciate that you've said that. And, and I'll, I'll be honest with you. Um, I've been um, part of um part of, part of programs, uh, you know, e even uh, programs that are, that are well-intended where, uh, they they talk about how they're there to help troubled youth, uh, and uh, you know of course in education settings we often have uh, programs that are designed to help children with disabilities, and you know we see things like you know uh, programs for kids that are labeled as emotionally disturbed, uh, and, and and those kind of labels always really um, bother me quite a bit uh, because I think we're we're often pathologizing human beings that. Um, in the name of behavior. And, and I, I, you know, if we want to talk about, you know, some of these programs, I mean, these are programs that are often um, perhaps, um, you know, perhaps supporting and supporting may be the wrong word here, but, um, you know, kids that have trauma, kids that have backgrounds that have been less than ideal, uh, you know, kids that are coming from uh, tough situations. And, and I agree with you. I think using that terminology, um, it really does kind of put it on uh, kids. And, and what, what I've seen, uh, and I'm sure that you've seen far more than I have, but uh, through the work that we do at the Alliance, we've had the opportunity to um, work with a lot of organizations and individuals um, that have been raising awareness, speaking out, trying to change laws around this kind of troubled teen industry. And, and of course, what I've seen is that, um, you know, the uh, people that I've met that have, um, and, and you use the word been trafficked, uh, which is probably a, a good way to put it, but have ended up in some of these turbo teen programs uh, are often individuals that have been displaying very typical normal behaviors for kids. Uh, and uh, there's often expectations around children and um, beliefs that I think are leading people to uh, this idea that somehow their their child is broken and needs to be fixed, when in fact that's often, you know, not the case. So, so right. I mean, it's interesting that you bring that point up because I think, you know, I, I, it's funny because in other contexts, when I hear, you know, a troubled youth, like that really bothers me. But I've gotten so used to calling this like the troubled teen industry, uh, and I've never really thought about that for a second about really what that's that's saying. But it, it is problematic. Yeah, I mean, I think it's that terminology is attractive to the target audience, right? right? And oftentimes the target audience is the parents, right? Um, because that's who is going to pay the large amount of money um, to send their child away, and they kind of market it as this, you know, one one size fits all. You know, is if your kid is struggling, is troubled, well, let's just ship them oftentimes multiple states away to another program, um, which is why I use the word trafficked. And we can get into that because I've definitely been careful about using that word mm -hmm. um, because 
people have been sent specifically to Freedom Village for different reasons. Some were court ordered, some were sent by their parents. Um, but I think the fact that the in at Freedom Village, a lot of these kids were working for free right. on the on the property, and the number of sexual abuse cases um, that came out of this place is very concerning. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so there's this network around the around the the country, and even beyond the country, because I know that there are places that that kind of go outside of the. Uh, the borders here in the United States uh, that people have been sent to, uh, which of course uh, introduces a whole host of of other issues. But uh, there, so this is network of these, um, you know, facilities, you know, um, boarding schools, and and the promise being made to parents, families is uh, you've got a troubled child and and send them away, and we're going to fix them. I mean, is that essentially kind of the pitch? And and are there other pathways? Uh, you know, I'm aware that you know sometimes there there's other pathways that, uh, you know, kids might find themselves there might even be professionals that are recommending placements like this. How are other ways that that kids end up in these um, facilities? Yeah. So, I mean, I, the first person that I interview and how I got involved with this, he um, got into some trouble in his early teens uh, and had the choice between going to juvie or going to freedom village. Um, So I have suspicions that there may be some fishiness happening on the legal side of things, Mm -hmm. because why are judges and people recommending going to this place? Um, If you listen to even the first episode, you'll hear that this is not appropriate for kids to be going to. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I mean, in his situation, it was, I think, spend like a year and a half in juvie um, or be sent away to this program. And, you know, it's marketed this one specifically in upstate New York is right on a lake. You know, they have a horse therapy program where you can take care of the horses as a form of therapy. Um, but it's really just taking care of this pastor's private (laughs) farm. Um, so on paper, this looks way more attractive than Mm -hmm. juvie. Um, right, right, right. Um, so, you know, we'll, we'll dive into the specifics here in a minute, but I just want to kind of set the stage a little bit more with some of the, the general background. So, you know, we've got this network, uh, you know, send us your, your troubled children, um, and, uh, we're going to fix them. And of course the, uh, the problem that, that I think, um, I'm aware of and that you're aware of is that, um, much of what many of these programs are doing, not only are not helpful to kids, are harmful, are traumatizing, are um, so. To just talk to me a little bit about, uh, you know, what what do some of these facilities look like? I mean, what's so you know, kind of beyond the promise of you know, um, which, which already is is somewhat problematic. What do some of these places look like, and, and why are uh, these places things that we need to be concerned about? Yeah. Um, I wanted to add one thing before uh, your last question on another avenue is the foster care system, which I don't think is talked about enough. Um, But I've had friends and someone, uh, Kayla, who was in our, we warned them. I mean, she was sent to programs strictly because they needed a place for her to go um, as a, as just housing. So that's also Another right. And, and, you know, I mean, avenue. I think about cases like Cornelius Fredericks, uh, who right. was uh, was killed in a prone restraint at a uh, residential facility. And, uh, you know, I mean, 
Uh, yeah, that, and, and I'm glad you bring that up because that's certainly another pathway. People sometimes think um, that it's only the um, only wealthy parents that are have the means, essential, but it, it can really be people from uh, really all um, you know walks of of life and from very different environments and settings. Yeah, and I feel like that's important to talk about because oftentimes it's the wealthy people that are can share their stories, you know, right. have have the privilege. I mean, I love what Paris Hilton has right. done and how she's spoken out about this thing. Um, but in reality, she's the minority right. um, of of the kids that are being affected. Um, so, yeah, right, but, to right. answer- but it's very easy when when, you know, you have a, you know, somebody that's high profile and, and again, not not in any way negative, but I mean, that that suddenly you could become a face for something and and there are many faces right. and voices that might not be getting you know seen and heard and 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 valued in the conversation which is is really um which is important i mean it's important that that you know uh, kind of the diversity of people that are impacted are heard yeah yeah, yeah. But so, so, so tell us a little bit about the, I mean, you know, again, what, what's, you know, we, you know, some people may have heard some of the stories, uh, you know, you mentioned Paris Hilton, of course, that that's, you know, gotten some media coverage, but you know, what are the kinds of things that are being done um, in these facilities um, that are so troubling? Yeah. So I would say the first, just like to put it on a map, oftentimes these places are in very isolated areas. Mm-hmm. So with the case of Freedom Village, it was located on a lake, no neighbors around um, in a very rural area. Um, So that's problem, I would argue, number one, because a lot of times the kids don't have anywhere to go. If there is a problem, you know, they can't even really run away because they don't know where they are and they're in the middle of nowhere. Of course, Um, that happens, though. I mean, we've we've seen in the news these stories of kids that have attempted to run away from uh, facilities like this. And yeah, you're right. I mean, I, I never really thought about the geography, but you know, when you want to control people, certainly when you isolate them, and I know there's many more ways that they isolate them from the outside world, um, which again are are troubling. So, so tell us more. I mean, what, what happens here? Yes. So, you know, upon arrival, um, kids are often strip searched, Um, All their belongings are taken from them, and then they're um, immediately segregated between boys and girls. Um, There's really weird rules, Um, and I'm talking about Freedom Village specifically now, but a lot of these, there's a theme, you know, with between all of these. Um, But a lot of strange rules, like not being allowed to look at another gender. And Mm. if you look at another gender, then you're punished. Um, and then in terms of what an actual day usually looks like there, um, the kids have described to me like a loud bell, like ringing alarm school bells mm-hmm. at like 6 a.m. Um, this was a religious program, so they had to do prayers and then immediately after prayers going into chores um, for most of the day. And then throughout the day, some kids <laughs> would go to the school. But as we found out, the school was not. Uh, involved with the New York State Board of Education. It was through a private uh, religious education called PACES, Mm. um, which I guess they're allowed to do. But the problem is that these kids who were all in high school were going, thinking that they were going to get their GED, thinking that they were going to get high school credit. And a lot of, and most of the times they got out and they didn't. So they weren't even really providing an education. Um, And then in terms of punishment, they had this thing called the woodpile, 
which is where kids would walk in a circle um, holding pieces of wood in four hour stretches. So mm. they would literally walk back and forth in a parking lot, carrying a piece of wood, dropping it, picking back up. And this was the main form of punishment at mm -hmm. Freedom Village. And, and typically speaking, you know, whether it be Freedom Village or, or some of these other um, uh, facilities, there's a lot of emphasis uh, from my understanding on kind of compliance and control, right? So yeah. th there's a lot of uh, things like point and level systems. And, uh, you know, can you can you explain some of the things that are in place in a, in a place like this? And, um, you know, in terms of, uh, and, and I also happen to know from, uh, you know, people that I've, uh, you know, work with here that uh, not only is there a lot of compliance and control, there's a lot of uh, things that are done to people in the name of compliance and control, uh, things like restraint and isolation and seclusion. Mm -hmm. um, talk a little bit more about the kinds of things that we might see in place in a program like this. Yeah, so the level system was the main one here, and the bottom level was literally called no level. Um, and during the day, you would often be put in a room, sometimes with other kids, and not be allowed to talk, not be allowed to look anyone, writing Bible verses over and over again. And most of the kids on no level had to do multiple shifts of the wood pile. Mm -hmm. So doing a four-hour stretch in the morning, four-hour stretch of the night, and of walking back and forth. And then slowly you could raise up to a B level, C level, um, and then you get to more of the higher levels of junior staff. And those were pretty much just um, the kind of became like the pastor's right hand man. Mm -hmm. um, the, the person that was in charge of this school, his name was Fletcher Brothers. And oftentimes, you know, they would get special if you were on that highest level, a special privilege would look like being able to leave the property to get an ice cream. <laughs> um, and a lot of the times what they do is they incentivize other kids to punish each other, to call right. each other yeah. out so that one right. can raise in a level and, and be pushed down. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. So in, in your experience, um, you know, and, and based on your research, um, what's the impact on someone that, that experiences this? I mean, you know, the, the, the glossy brochure with the pictures of the, the pony, uh, you know, promise that, you know, we're, we're going to, we're going to help your child. But, uh, it seems to me from, uh, the conversations I've had and the people that I've known and knowing what's being done to people that, that that's not what's happening. So, I mean, what, what's the impact that, you know, a stay at a place like Freedom Village has on someone? Yeah. I mean, I would uh, complex PTSD from the second you get there, even from leaving. I mean, it's traumatizing to often uh, to, to go from a city to the rural area. I mean, I remember the first kid that I interviewed, he said he had never seen a cow before, mm -hmm. you know, so there's a lot of culture shock mm -hmm. um, and then being completely isolated from your community um, often leads to depression, anxiety, um, a whole a lot of times, whatever the child is, are, the teen is already dealing with after Freedom Village, it's it's just exacerbated mm -hmm. um, from whatever that from whatever that problem was. Mm -hmm. um, you know these these things like the no level system they really encourage shame. Right. You know, right. I think there's that's that's why I would argue this isn't really rehabilitative. 
Because right. um, what are you, what are you teaching these kids that if you tell on your friend, then you get to raise in the level system. Right. right. And eventually, you know, I mean, eventually you are subjecting people to things that you were subjected to uh, as you go up in that level. I mean, it, it's the, the whole, the whole idea uh, of what happens and, and, um, I mean, it's, it's terribly manipulative and of course, terribly harmful. Um, and, and I'm sure that, uh, you know, people even leave with a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of guilt and shame over, well, I'm sure when that realization hits that, that at one point, you know, uh, if you went up in that level system and became kind of the oppressor, uh, mm-hmm. I, I'm sure that is a tough realization when and if people have that. So, so we've got a general sense of this. We've got a general sense of there's this 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 uh, industry out there uh, that has been built around uh, a promise to take teens who, um, in some way, are, are not meeting your expectations or having difficulty or have gotten in trouble, and you're going to send them off to us, and we're going to to do these things and fix them. And of course, uh, you know how it sounds to a, a parent or uh, even maybe someone that's professionally in a capacity of of making these decisions might sound like something that is positive, but it's anything but in in many many cases. Um, so let's let's get a little bit more specific. So you um, like me at one point probably had no knowledge of this happening. Yeah, no idea. So how did you first begin to learn about the troubled teen industry? Um, how did that? How was that something that kind of got on your radar? Yeah, super unexpected. I mean, I grew up in Rochester in the suburbs, and then um, I moved to New York City um, uh, 2019, around there. And then in 2020, I was hanging out in a community garden in Brooklyn, was smoking weed with some guys. And uh, they were like, oh, yeah, we uh, we just got out of Rochester. And I was like, Rochester? I was like, oh, that's where I'm from. And they kind of looked at me like, what? And I was like, what? What's what's wrong with Rochester? And they literally told me, you will not believe us if we tell you. Mm-hmm. And I was like, try me. Um, and that was the first interview after like 20 minutes of us talking. Um, I, I knew that what they were saying was going to be important and that I wanted to document it. So I just casually asked if I could turn on my phone recorder. Um, and that turned into the first interview, which is featured in the first um, episode. It's weaved in with a bunch of different interviews, but yeah. Um, my and, friend- and, and let's just call that out real quick so that people can, uh, can go and bookmark that if they want to, or, 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 you know, uh, put it, put it as something they want to listen to. So you've got this series that you've done um, about, why don't you tell us a little bit about the series? And, and I think, uh, yeah, Courtney's going to bring the link up here as well. But what is this series that you've created? So you, you I know I'm yeah, kind of interrupting um, your flow here, but you know, tell us a little bit about the series. Yeah, it's six episodes. So I've been calling it an audio documentary. Um, and the six episodes weave together around 30 interviews of people across the four decades that Freedom Village was open um, of people that were connected to the to Freedom Village. So some former staff, some people that were born there, um, my friends who were part of the last group at Freedom Village before it was shut down in 2019. Mm-hmm. And it also weaves together interviews with my partner, um, who's a clinical therapist. And so she accompanied me on a lot of the interviews. And so throughout the series, we also 
get to hear more of a psychological perspective on um, just her expertise on what she's been observing, um, especially she had never heard about the troubled teen industry either. So the first episode kind of opens the door onto what it is. And then each episode, um, yeah, you can click on the link here that takes you to the website. Um, Each episode has a theme. Um, So talking about institutionalization, the history, um, how is it a cult, the aftermath, the long-term aftermath. And then the final episode is called Where Are They Now, where we talk about what happened um, and the collective of We Warn Them. Okay, great, great. And, and I didn't want to interrupt you, but but I just wanted to make sure that like early on we, we bookmark this for people so that they can they can go and they can listen to this and, and they can um so you have this initial conversation and, and you turn on your phone and you start recording. You, you you at some point think to yourself, like, I'm gonna I'm gonna do something about this. I'm gonna I'm gonna make a podcast. I mean, how how does that lead to that one recorded conversation lead to this podcast series? Yeah, I mean, I was just inspired and I, you know, had it on recording and then, you know, immediately the day after you kind of wake up and was like, oh, what did I, what, what do I have here? And so I immediately went to Google um, and I just started researching and I could barely find anything, which was shocking because this place was open for 40 years. Um, there had been like two local newspapers that had written about it and then the the biggest thing I found was a Reddit thread. Um, you know, Reddit, there's a huge subculture community there, but there had been a thread of someone had posted their story and there was over, I think like 200 comments mm-hmm. on that Reddit of people being like, yo, I went here, I went here, this is crazy. And so that just showed me that there was clearly people that are interested in speaking out. Um, but then a lack of actual media talking about this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and of course, you were from the area and knew nothing about this. Right, which, right. which leads me to, you know, um, I went back to visit my family that summer. And I immediately just started asking people. I mean, this I grew up in Rochester. This was in Watkins Glen area. So it was about a 40-minute drive away from I, where I specifically grew up. Um, and so I went up there and just started asking people questions. And I usually got two responses. It was either, I have no idea what you're talking about, or why are you asking about this? Mm-hmm. And it was kind of, I remember going to the the local town bar and kind of people were turning my heads of like, who's this, who's this girl? Why is she asking about this place? And mm-hmm. I think a lot of people in the local community knew what was going on, but felt like they couldn't really do anything about it. It was like, you know, this a really abusive place has been here for a really long time. They keep to themselves. Some people describe to me, oh, I, I, you know, I picked up a kid that was trying to run away. Oh, I saw a kid that was trying to run away. Mm-hmm. Um, one person described that they their house was broken into in the early 90s and their food was stolen. Mm-hmm. That's what the kids stole was mm-hmm. the food because they were so hungry. Mm-hmm. Um, so as you begin to, to dig into this, you, you're, you, know, you had a couple conversations, you began doing the research, you began asking questions. Um, you know, what, were some of the, what were some of the stories that you heard or what were some of the things that you found um, that can, t- and because, you know, 
there was obviously something here. I mean, this wasn't just like a random conversation you had. Suddenly you're digging into this and you're like, oh, there's something here that, that's interesting. So what were some of those stories that you were hearing from people? And, uh, you know, uh, tell us a little bit about, you know, kind of what you learned as you began to, to do this research. Yeah. So I went back to my friend in New York and I was like, hey, I want to, you know, continue interviewing people. Um, and so we actually, me, him um, and my girlfriend, we took a road trip upstate and he introduced me to three of his friends who had also been in the program. Mm -hmm. Um, and I remember, uh, she's featured in episode two, um, Angel, and she describes to me one of the punishments. Um, I think she tried to run away or she didn't, she didn't follow some instruction and they kicked her out to the hallway and they show, showed, showed, showed a light on her face right. all night mm -hmm. in terms of, of like sleep deprivation. Mm -hmm. And this girl, she would. I think she was 14 at the time she was sent to freedom village at 13. It had been a couple months. She was 14 mm. and she's in the hallway being punished uh, with this light in her face. And, you know, I think it's, it's different when you, when you hear a, someone describing their abuse, you know, 10 years after it happened, right. 20 years right. after it happened, but to hear her describe it so nonchalantly, like she was like, Oh yeah, this just happened to me. Right, right. And that was almost the most uh, troubling part of it was that mm -hmm. this was her reality, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. um, and 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 thinking about the people that you um, have interviewed for the the series and the people that you've met, um, you know, we talked earlier kind of generally about uh, how people ended up there. But uh, thinking about the stories of the people that you've talked to, how did people end up at Freedom Village? How did the people that you came in contact with, um, what, what got them there, uh, in the first place? Yeah. I mean, it really varies. You know, one kid I met was just smoking a lot of too much weed. His parents thought mm. he was smoking too much weed, drinking too much and was like, we don't really want to deal with this problem internally. We're going to send it away. Mm. You know, some kids were having anger management problems, you know, having outbursts and, but I really think it's just families that have been that have been drained of resources. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of the times families are dealing with poverty, you know, are dealing with these larger system systems of oppression and raising a kid is hard, you know. And then when these um, programs are going into these communities and specifically targeting these families, you know, mm -hmm. I didn't hear about this. You know, my family wasn't targeted from this. They weren't sending, you know, pamphlets to my door or anything. Um, and so they're targeting these families. And oftentimes this is the cheapest option. I mean, mm -hmm. I remember Angel said that her mom was just looking for a place to send her away. And this was the cheapest one. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and once, once away. So... Now, I, I don't know about Freedom Village, and, and maybe you can fill this in a little bit as well, but um, my, my understanding, uh, you know, from some of the, the folks that I've talked to over the, the years, um, even getting to a facility uh, sometimes is itself rather traumatic. I mean, we've heard stories about, you know, young people essentially being kidnapped from their own homes and being taken against their will. Um, were you finding these kinds of things happening at the people that you talked to that were going to Freedom Village? Um, you know, how, how, how were people ending up there? Were, 
um, you know, what, what was, what that did that look like in your conversations? Yeah. Um, so I, I have not heard of any cases of the transport services, okay. Okay. um, which you're talking about. Yep. Um, but I know that's very common in a lot of troubled teen schools, which for people that don't know, oftentimes the parents will consent to large men coming into a child's room at night and taking and them away. Yeah. Um, or pulling them in a car in a parking lot, um, legal kidnapping, as I say, because the mm-hmm. parents sign away at this. And I don't yeah. think it shouldn't be that, legal. That shouldn't be legal. Yeah. I mean, I, I really think maybe parents don't understand how traumatizing this mm-hmm. is. And a lot of the times it's kind of formatted as, well, your child doesn't listen to instructions. They're not going to to go themselves. So we need to take force. Um, in terms of Freedom Village, I talked to a couple kids that were that were tricked into being sent there. Like they were saying, hey, we're going to, you know, take you on a little road trip today and then have their bag packed in the back. They show up at Freedom Village and was like, well, you're leaving now. Mm-hmm. Um, but how, how, how horrifying to be dropped off in the middle of nowhere. You don't know where you are. You're right. not near anything. And uh, the, the people that you you love and you trust are driving away. Um, yeah, yeah. Now, so l- let's imagine for a second that, that somebody is, is dropped off there at Freedom Village. Now, let's, let's assume, um, and, and you could, you could tell me it's a bad assumption if you want, but let, let's assume that someone is you know doing this. A parent has made a choice to do this because they feel they have no other choice and they're doing it because they, they believe in some way that this is going to be helpful to their child. Right. Okay. Um, but, but let's imagine now that the child gets there and, and these bad things are happening. Um, and, and I've heard different stories, um, from different people that have had various experiences, but, um, what about communication home? Well, I mean, you know, I, I would imagine I'd be, you know, wanting to call home and saying, you got to get me out of here. This is horrible. Um, tell me about that. I mean, tell me what happens in terms of once somebody gets there, what happens with communication that they might have uh, happening with people at home? Uh, is that restricted? Is that controlled? Um you know, I mean, you would think that if these really bad things were happening, that parent might jump in the car and say, oh, I'm going to come get my child. But uh, right. I'm guessing uh, that at Freedom Village, probably much like other facilities, that uh, one, communication might be limited, and two, uh, it might be, um, oh gosh, what's the best word? I mean, you know, I mean, it might be dishonest and just untruthful in terms Manipulated. of. Manipulated. Yeah. Right, right. So tell yeah. me what that looked like. I mean, upon getting there, parents watch a video that pretty much says, do not believe anything your child says. Um, Your child may say that they hate it here, but just know that this program takes a while, you know, for a a child to get used to. So they they prime the parents from day one. Like if your child says anything, don't believe them, which is problematic because we need to be listening to kids. Like they are oftentimes more truthful than adults. Um, And yeah, then in terms of actual communication, all phone calls were monitored. So there was always someone on the line listening to the call between the parent and the child Mm. and all mail was read. Mm. Um, And if a, you know, if there was a letter that talked about the woodpile and how tired they are from hauling wood for all these hours, oftentimes it would be blacked out with a marker or just not sent Mm. at all. I had a girl that commented um, on my Instagram that was saying the they never gave her her parents' letters. So for a whole year, 
she just thought her parents didn't care, but mm-hmm. her parents were sending the letter and then they didn't give it to her. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, which is a part of the isolation tactic. Um, you know, in this is profitable in terms of the longer a kid stays there, the more money freedom village makes. Mm-hmm. So there's not an incentive to get the kid ready to go. It's more of an incentive to keep the kid there for as long as possible. Mm, mm, mm. Um, so they, they don't really want the, the parents and the kids uh, talking. Yeah. Uh, somebody just asked a question. It's, it's a great question. Uh, Jennifer said, uh, did parents ever receive blacked out letters? Uh, did that not raise concern for anybody? Yeah, that's a good question. You would think that if somebody was getting mail that looked like it had been redacted, that they would be like, you know, or, or, or were they some way primed for that? Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I don't know. Like I would, I would love, and this is a person people I'd love to talk to is the parents. You know, right. I feel like I've interviewed a lot of kids that have been through this. Um, but I, I don't, I don't really know. I, I would that, think that so. Like I another, would that sounds like another season. <laughs> that, season two. Um, it, it would, it would be interesting. And, and, you know, so on that topic, um, you know, again, um, you know, I think that um, in many areas that, that we are often misled, uh, you know, as, as, as parents, you know, whatever role you might be in, uh, there are sometimes those out there that might be misleading us in terms of, um, you know, the, the best way to um, support a child or, you know, what a child needs. And of course, you know, um, people are led to believe things that uh, honestly can be quite harmful um, to, to their children. And uh, you know, it's, it's pretty upsetting, but you know, again, assuming a parent is doing this with some intent of like, Oh, there's a problem that we've got to fix and somehow this is going to help you. uh, I would have to imagine. And, and, you know, again, based on some conversations I've had um, knowing that, you know, being traumatized in, in this kind of facility um, would really uh, harm a relationship between the the family. I mean, what what's the impact? I mean, let's say somebody is there for a couple of years and then comes out of Freedom Village. I mean, what what is the impact on the family? And, um, you know, I mean, you know, again, if, if you were there under your parents, you know, direction and, and you know, these things were being done to you, uh, I can only imagine, you know, how you might feel then. I mean, what's yeah. what's the impact been on in your experience on kind of like what that's done to base the level family? lack of trust, lack of trust. I mean, kids come back and they just don't trust their parents in any capacity. Um, and then I would also say some confusion, especially from the parents' standpoint. Um, and this is one of my became a later motivation was to have something that kids could share with their parents, you know, because a lot of times kids tell their parents what happens and some of the extreme cases, and it is hard to believe. And then on top of that, having to accept the fact that I, like me as the parent was the one people don't want to believe that. And I unfortunately talked to some people that didn't even tell their parents, Mm -hmm. they were almost given up on it. They were just Mm -hmm. like, you know what? Like, Well, I I mean, you'd almost think like they sent me here. They must know what it is. You know, Uh, even if they didn't, you might assume that they they knew what it was. They knew what they were doing. So, I mean, I can see that building a tremendous amount of resentment and I can see 
you know, the potential for, for damaged relationships. And like you said, it's a really hard leap to make to, to put yourself in a position to think, gee, um, I sent my child here and my child was harmed. My child was traumatized by this. Uh, and I'm sure there are people that have a hard time even making that connection and, and realizing that they're, they're, they're part in it. Uh, even, even if, you know, that was not their intent. Um, yeah. 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 So Freedom Village, of course, was a religious, uh, you know, they were a religious organization. Uh, and not, yeah. all of, uh, not all of these, you know, not all of these, you know, facilities are. But how does that make Freedom Village different from, say, a non-religious boarding school type of situation? Yeah. So this was a um, more extreme sector. Um, it's called Independent Fundamentalist Baptist religion, um, which is very um, fire and brimstone, the preacher, very intense. Um, A lot of the main tactic is through fear. Um, So a lot of damnation, talk of hell. Um, This was, you know, the kids were subject on Wednesdays and Sundays to often listen to two hour long sermons of this man, just, I kid you not like screaming in front of them. Um, So that's what makes it a little bit different. Um, There's a great uh, series that actually you may have seen it circulating around the the internet on HBO max right now. It's called let us pray. Mm. Um, And this docu-series dives into the, they call it the IFB, the IFB movement, Um, which I would argue started in the 50s. Um, Some prominent names, Jack Hiles, Lester Roloff, Jerry Falwell, um, all these are this kind of collective network um, that make a lot of money from Mm -hmm. the troubled teen Mm -hmm. industry Mm -hmm. that can help finance their campaigns. um, And they have political connections um, as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I want to hit on a couple of comments here, real quick. And uh, uh, Heather said uh, the trouble teen industry uh, is predatory and creates barriers between parents and their children. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mentioned a case in Pennsylvania where the judge received kickbacks for referring children to a specific program. Uh, it might be, um, let's see, it might be a different state. Um, yeah, and and I've heard things like that as well. That potentially there are uh, financial incentives that have led people to recommend facilities. And of course, you know, we, we've seen that kind of thing happen and play out in, in a lot of different contexts. The the common denominator is often harm being done to people. Um, Leanne Crawford, uh, who of course is doing amazing work um, around uh, uh, the Judge Rotenberg Center and, uh, you know, um, uh, of course, another a horrific facility, one that uses electroshock on uh, autistic individuals that are in their care, yeah. um, said amazing work, Margaret. And, uh, thank you, you know, thank you both for your hard work. Um, say, I mentioned that comment. Oh, here's another one. Um, Jennifer, and thank you for sharing this said I, w- I was there uh, and I never told my parents about anything, uh, that went on there until I was an adult. Uh, then they didn't believe me because they knew the preacher, you know, slash founder. Um, Yeah, Yeah, something that I want to say just about the preacher and founder is that this man was um, a narcissist and like most narcissists are extremely charming. Um, I think he was able to keep up this act for so long was because he was able to get so many people to believe in his mission and support him. Um, Yeah, I mean, just a really intense 
charismatic person that was able to um, trick a lot of people for money mm-hmm. and for power. And a lot of the times the power was having control over these kids. Yeah. And, and, and you know, as you say that, I'm, I'm just kind of thinking to myself that, um, and, and it's, it's the harm, it's the harm that was done. I mean, um, uh, you know, I, I don't mean to sound the wrong way, but I, you know, I, I, I can forgive greed more easily than I can, can, can forgive doing harm to other people to doing mm. harm to other human beings, you know? Um, and, and I mean, that's what we're talking about. And when you're putting dollars on, on, you know, uh, harming people and causing trauma, um, it's not, it's hard to imagine much that's worse than that. Um, yeah. So, um, talk to me about we warn them and how um, you know this this podcast is related to we warn them and what we warn them is. Yeah. So, you know, my friend connected me to his friends that had just left the program, and then you know, once I decided that I wanted to do a series, I wanted to get as many voices as possible, and so I started going. Um, on Facebook. And I eventually realized that there was already a collective of survivors. There's a Facebook group called um, Freedom Village Truth, which Mm. is specifically for people that have been to Freedom Village. And I quickly met the admin of that page, Jazz. And she shared her story with me about being trafficked from California to Rochester. And then in 2019, right as my friends left um her the so freedom village was going to shut down because they were bankrupt i think it was like something close to three million dollars so they Mm -hmm. had to sell the property and then as many troubled teen schools do they wanted to relocate change names keep staff um to south carolina And so Jazz and a collective of five to 10 other survivors um, band together and organized a community town hall meeting in South Carolina and educated. They um, collected testimonies, had printouts available for people, and then had one person actually go and share their story. And she organized... um, this meeting to educate the South Carolina community about this. And the South Carolina community was like, hell no, we do not want this in our, um, in our town. And so through, you know, boots on the ground, collective action, we're calling their elected officials, we're calling the representatives, emailing, writing, and eventually got to the point um, where the town decided to not open up Freedom Village. Mm-hmm. And from the success of that um, that event, Jazz decided to keep 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 the momentum rolling. And that looked like forming the We Warn Them Collective. Mm-hmm. Um, that is now a nonprofit that um, fights against institutional abuse through direct action. Um, and so, yeah, she asked me, we connected, she's in the last episode, um, where if you haven't, you can hear this kind of story that I briefly just described about the South Carolina, but super inspirational. And, um, yeah, so now we are a collective of, of people that are passionate about fighting against this issue and, um, human rights issues in general, how these all intersect. Um, and yeah, we're called, we warn them. Mm-hmm. And uh, so a- after South Carolina, um, 
and, and you know, um, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of wondering, uh, you know, I was kind of thinking as you were telling me that, and of course I, I knew a, a little bit of that story, but, um, did they try to go anywhere else? Um, you know, I, I, I and I was also too wondering like their reasons for, you know, the, the reasons the town turned it away, were they the right reasons? So, you know, sometimes people don't want things in their backyard for the wrong reasons, but at the end of the day, it didn't matter. It was good. They didn't want them there. Yeah. Um, but did they try to go elsewhere? Um, did they try to find somewhere else that would be receptive? To what not that, not that we know of currently okay. both, um, they, the, the brother's family lives in Florida. Um, you know, Fletcher brothers still has his daily podcast, um, which, you know, he does. Um, unfortunately he's still raising funds, um, which it's a little ironic, but, uh, he's running, run, raising funds under the slogan, kids lives matter. Mm, mm, mm. Interesting. Uh, yeah, literally selling T-shirts, little yard signs that say mm. "Kids Lives Matter." Um, from my research, his main audience is um, extremely conservative people in like the Bible Belt area. I think mm. those are the people that are tuning mm. in and listening. I don't know how successful it it, it is, mm. um, but I do know that there are currently four open sexual abuse cases that are currently happening in New York. Um, so they are having to respond to those cases right now. Um, yeah, so that's the most um, up-to-date thing I know. But in terms of them opening up another school, um, it, it doesn't look very promising. I think a lot of their resources were drained. They kind of, from my understanding, they kind of hit their peak in right. the in the 90s and early, two th- early 2000s where they had close to 300 kids wow. in the program. Wow. And then that last year, my friends, there was about 15 of them. Gotcha. And, and of course, I mean, it, it's, it's, um, it's good to know that the facility is no longer a facility that, that did a lot of harm to a lot of, a lot of people that, that, you know, and, and people that I've met as well. Um, but of course there are plenty of other facilities around the country um, that are doing similar things. Some of them are religious organizations. Some of them are not, um, many of them, the, the common denominator is kind of the idea of your your child is broken. We're going to fix them through compliance and control and, and you know, point and level systems and uh, lots of behavioral manipulation, a lot of things that are really harmful. Uh, a lot of this place is leading to a lot of trauma, um, which, of course, you know, increases, uh, you know, what might happen to people when they get out, whether it's, you know, becoming addicted to drugs or alcohol or you know, other types of things that might be secondary to the trauma that people endure in a facility like this. So the impact, lifelong impact can be can be really significant. I want to ask you for a second, if you can, you mentioned your your partner was a therapist or a counselor. Okay. Yeah, um, she's a clinical therapist. Cl- clinical therapist. Okay. Um, and, and I'm going to ask you to channel your, your partner for a second, and, and you can just do the best you can. Uh, but what I was going to ask you is, is that, you know, of course, the uh, one of the solutions here to this problem, and, and there are many, um, some of it's legislative, getting better laws and policies passed. And of course, there are organizations out there that are working to do that. I'm, I know we warn them is, is supportive of, of changes as well. Um, but one of the other changes that needs to happen is, is more upstream in terms of, uh, you know, if we can prevent people from sending children to these kinds of facilities, they won't exist. Um, so, you know, kind of putting on your, your partner's, uh, 
kind of, uh, you know, uh, therapist, counselor kind of uh, hat. Um, what might you share? And, and based on what you've learned, I mean, what might you share with a parent or a family uh, about what they might do instead of sending a child to a place like this that is claiming to fix their child that could, in fact, um, be really harmful? Um, any, any thoughts on that of, of what, um, you know, what you would want them to know? I mean, I've actually had um, in the past, and I've, I've probably connected them to, to Jazz or others, but we've had parents that have reached out and said, hey, you know, um, we, we were actually thinking about sending a child to this facility and we read this uh, article on your website and, and now we're questioning that. What do we do? Um, any any thoughts? I mean, um, what would yeah. you share with a parent that might be like, oh, well, you know, there's these facilities and somebody recommended them and look, they get to go hike in the woods and, you know. Um, right. Thoughts? I would say the first thing is, you know, research, like right. take the time to Google and not just the first page of Google, like right. go to the fifth page in Google, try and find those Reddit threads, you know, try and I think if the parent really wants to send a kid, try and talk to someone that's been there, you know, right. but even before that, I would say look around to your actual community. I think that is the the biggest solution is that we need to invest in our actual communities. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This idea that we can send a kid away, that we can send away their problems and then they can come back fixed is just not realistic. Right, right. You know, I think we have to break the stigma of mental health about having kids that are struggling. We need to be able to let be vulnerable a little bit and share that with our neighbors, sh connect with other parents who have gone through similar things with other kids um, and start, I would say, just create an actual conversation. And, you know, each community is different. Um, but I would encourage parents to invest in local resources. You know, are there community centers? Are there places, you know, other people that have been through similar things? Um, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, even taking a look at your your um, ideas around, um, you know, parenting, even reflecting upon, um, you know, what are your expectations? I mean, sometimes we put unreasonable expectations on, on kids, right. um, expectations that aren't aligned with what we know about like brain development and, and you know, how, how children grow in development, uh, you know. Uh, you know, and a lot of, I mean, I, I, I would say, and this is just, you know, my, my opinion here, but, you know, if your, your parenting approach is very compliance and control oriented, uh, maybe that needs to change as well. Um, you know, sometimes the, uh, you know, the, the, uh, you know, the children and youth that um, might be struggling are ones that are, you know, at home in situations that are really difficult. And I think sometimes even adjusting anything we can do to, to keep a family together and, and, you know, work in a supportive way and, you know, understand that, you know, I mean, kids' brains are not fully developed adult brains and kids are going to make bad decisions. They're going to make some bad choices and that's okay. Our brain is wired in that way. In fact, you know, I mean, our, our cortex doesn't develop until we're, you know, 25 or 30 years old completely. Um, it, it's part of our, our biology. We're, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to make some mistakes and do some things that we shouldn't do. Yeah. Um, I mean, but, what you're saying about this, the, the brain stuff, I mean, maybe even learning about that, you know, right, really right. understanding yep. what trauma informed is. And I think a lot of people, you know, if they grew up being beat, beat as a kid, right. um, you know, yep. having, you know, some more extreme punishments, they may be dealing with their own trauma with that and then just repeat Absolutely. that on, Absolutely. Their, on their kid. Um, 
which there, there, there's a lot of cycles of trauma that have to be broken. And, and right. we do see that a lot. I mean, we, we do see people and, you know, I mean, I, I, um, I mean, this is, is something I've shared before, but uh, you know, in, in when I was young, um, when I was a kid, um, a couple of the initial schools I went to were religious schools. Um, I was subjected to corporal punishment. I was, I was hit at school. Um, <laughs> I mean, for, for minor things. And, uh, you know, I mean, the fact that I can remember them, I'm, I'm 53 years old and can still remember that. I mean, they were traumatic. And, you know, yeah. I think that um, even if things happen to us or were done to us, um, you know, we can break those cycles. And, and I, I happen to be a firm believer in that understanding some of the, you know, the developmental piece of, of childhood and understanding brain development and understanding trauma can really help us to make sure that we're not perpetuating cycles of trauma and that we're doing things to, to make the world a better place and safer for kids. Um, but, but it does, I mean, I think there's, there's a lot that we can do, um, you know, before you decide to send your child off somewhere to be fixed and, and, uh, you know, I, I just hate that whole ideology, right. Um, there's a lot that can be done to, to work with and support and using community resources, you know, um, doing your research, um, I happen to be a big fan of uh, Dr. Mona Della Hook's work, and she wrote a great book called Brain Body Parenting that kind of goes into some of the brain science and development uh, around that. So certainly a lot that people can do um, to to hopefully direct things in a better direction and, and avoid this kind of outcome. Yeah, yeah. So you, you've, you have this series. How many episodes are there now? There's six, and that's, that's going to be it. Um, okay. I really um, took me almost three years to complete shout out to my amazing editor Steph, who helped me a lot. And just so many friends, um, that believed in this project, mm-hmm. we did it on with no money, zero budget. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there's six episodes, um, that kind of tells the story. I hope to, you know, do another season. Um, who knows what that will look like right now, mm-hmm. but, um, yeah, that's why I've been calling it more of an audio documentary. It's kind of just yep. one yep. thing. Yeah, that's 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 great. So, um, what is on? You know, what what's up next for you? What's what are you planning on focusing on, or um, do you have other projects that you're beginning to uh, to work on? Yes. Yeah, so, um, I actually just dropped a, a chat, but we're I'm working with the We Won Them Collective now, and we are trying to get fiscal sponsorship. Um, so we are currently raising funds um, to get that fiscal sponsorship. Um, and yeah, I think after we get that fiscal sponsorship, we can kind of level up in terms of our, um, projects of, we warn them. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and I just, as you're saying this, I just brought up, uh, there's, there's a link tree, uh, and we've got, we can share a link to that as well. That goes to some of the information about, we warn them. And of course, uh, one of them is GoFundMe for, uh, raising funds for, uh, fiscal sponsorship. Um, so, you know, if you want to support, um, this work and it's, it's important work, um, I've happened to have the, um, privilege of, of not only meeting jazz, but a number of the people that have been working, uh, related to, re- we warn them and, um, you know, a fantastic group of people that are doing, uh, you know, really important work to help bring about change. And of course I hear you can also, as I recall, yep, there we go. There's a link to the, uh, the podcast so people can go here to the, Linktree page, and we can put that again in the chat, uh, but they can uh, listen to the podcast there. Um, so lots of, of great information. In fact, there's an article there that um, 
uh, I believe that's Jazz's article yeah, um, that yeah, yeah. written about her experience with the troubled teen industry. So anyway, we'll we'll throw this in the chat, but definitely want to encourage people to support the the work of We Warn Them um, because it is important. We do need to, um, you know, we do need to to change things. And uh, um, oh, great! I see that Courtney just put that in the uh, the chat as well. So. Uh, those links are there. Uh, so I want to give people that are watching live now, uh, if you have any final thoughts or questions or comments, uh, feel free to put those in the chat and we'll get a couple of comments here, hopefully, or, or questions uh, that we can uh, address here in a second. Um, but I want to ask you while we're waiting, um, you know, in in your work to do this, um, you know, what what's your hope? I mean, what's your hope out of you know this? Because I can only imagine how many uh, hours and 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 probably. I mean, this is not. Um, it's not easy. It's not not easy to hear the stories and to you know to put this kind of thing together. Um, but what's your hope? I mean, what's your hope that uh, what might this this podcast series do? Um, any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think what you just said is that it's not easy to listen um, and to hear. And so my hope is that people will listen. You know, of course, listen to the podcast. But what I really mean is like, listen to people that have been through this themselves. Mm -hmm. And I hope that people that have been through this can find the courage to share their story. Because it's it's hard to share something um to, to share something that has touched and hurt you so deeply. Um, so my hope is that, you know, I, I really believe that the backbone to a lot of things is community. And my hope is that people can go, can grow stronger in their own communities, whether, whether that be in person or in the, uh, the multiple kind of online communities that exist. Mm-hmm. Um, but because the troubled teen industry is still so niche, I think there there needs to be a push for a general understanding of what that looks like, mm-hmm. um, which is why I would I say listen. Um, and then on a more technical level, my hope is that there's legislation that comes about. Um, something that we warn them has been pushing for that you can also find in the link tree is a call to action to support SICA, which is the stop. Uh, your timing was perfect on that because Leanne just asked, yep. does we warn them support SICA? Uh, do, yeah. do you want to do you want to tell us a little bit about um, what SICA is? Yeah, so SICA is um, a federal bill that's trying to be passed right now that would essentially create um, a national database of all of the troubled teen schools. So part of the problem right now is that there's no, there's not a uh, federal central location where you can find all these schools. Mm-hmm. Unsilenced has an awesome program archive on their website, which was built by databases. But in terms of getting legislation passed, we need references, you know, that people can reference and say, hey, this is real. Um, so SICA would uh, allow that to be created. And they would also give recommendations for best practices in these schools and increase oversight. Um, and then also um, in, uh, have a task force in place. Mm-hmm. Um, that would also help oversight. Um, mm-hmm. And, and I, you, have to, you have to remind me if my memory is right here. Uh, is, is SICA Stop Institu- Institutional Child Abuse Act? Is that what it is? Mm-hmm. Um, okay, okay. Um, and, and of course, um, 
one of the things that that uh, I know from um, having connection with you know a number of the different groups that are working on this is that um, you know the the bill actually has gotten some bipartisan support, which is fantastic. That's what we um, need. That's yeah. what we need. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's a bipartisan issue, you know, right. and that's well, and some of these things should be, but for one reason or another, they're not. I mean, some of these are human issues. They're not. They're not Democratic issues or Republican issues or whatever they may be. Unfortunately, many issues turn into partisan issues, which really is uh, troubling. But um, you know, we we also know that this process is not easy, and uh, you know, I'm I'm sure that all of the uh, the people that have worked hard to um, Try to move forward with some legislation. Uh, at times, it's frustrating because you might not get everything you want in a bill. There's there's probably a lot more, and I know there's previous versions of this uh, drafted that 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 would have done more. But at yeah. the same time, uh, the political process is a slow, deliberate, incremental process, and and I hate that it's that, but it's just the reality of it. So you know, I'm sure there are people that think, well, this bill isn't doing enough. But it is certainly something that's a huge step in the right direction, wouldn't you say? Oh, yeah, 100%. And, you know, I've talked to some of the people that have been a part of that process, and they have definitely said this is the introductory bill. You know, this is going to be one. I mean, this is a multi-billion dollar industry. Like, it's not a one fix. Like, unfortunately, it's probably going to be years and years and years of different legislation, different bills, um, you know, being introduced. yeah. But that's why I also encourage people to look into what troubled teen schools are in their own local area. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of the time, just like what Jazz organized with the South Carolina is if we can go in and hyper focus on one school, oftentimes we can get that shut down quicker mm-hmm. than a national legislative place. So I would encourage right, people. Right, right. To, yeah, I'm trying, trying yeah. to think of the, the effort that was happening in uh, Missouri. Um uh, that the agape the, that was awesome yeah, yeah 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 i mean and and uh, uh rob rob was it robert, robert yeah, yeah, robert yeah, yeah. yep 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 uh, i haven't talked to robert in a while but i uh, talked to him quite a bit as that was happening and you know i mean the the difference that a single individual can make and and, and i've had the fortune of meeting a lot of single individuals that are like you know leanne who was commenting earlier that the difference that a single individual can make when they really um you know one, share their story and, and two, come out. And I love that you you mentioned that. Like, there is so much power in our stories. And, and you know, one of the things that I've heard, and, and I, I can't tell you who coined it, but I've heard it come out of the, the troubled teen industry was kind of like turning pain into power, right? Uh, these experiences that you have, um, we sometimes have more power and influence to change things. And we realize uh, it's not easy, but at the same time, uh, you know, people really can make a difference and, uh, you yeah. know, and, you know, so, so it is important and, and it's not easy though, either. You know, I think about the, uh, you know, the communities and, um, you know, having been involved in a number of the different groups that are, that are out there that are doing, I think, amazing work. Um, you know, when you come together with people that share that common trauma and experience, it's tough because, you know, um, we all want change. We all want to make things better. Uh, but we all also have suffered some, you know, the, the people that are that are part of these communities have often suffered um, some pretty significant, um, you know, stress and trauma related to this. Right. Which is why I think that allyship is super important in this movement as well. You know, a lot of the people, the survivors telling their story is hard enough. So that's why I encourage people that 
you know, don't know about this or realize that it's a problem to, to get involved. You know, you you don't, I, I have not been through this, thank God, you know, but I'm using as much as I can to talk about this, to raise awareness, to connect with community, um, over this issue. And so I would just encourage, you know, people, even if this hasn't affected you directly, most likely, you know, somebody that it has, or the possibility of it affecting you or your cousin or your niece is, is, is pretty high. So I think realizing as well, that this is, we're we're all connected in this. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you know, I mean, it's interesting because, uh, you know, uh, the, the work that we do here in the Alliance, we, we, we've been, I think, uh, gosh, we'll probably go back four years or, or more. I mean, we've been around for about five years, but um, have been connected in some way with people that have been working related to the troubled teen industry. And while while it, it initially wasn't kind of directly, you know, the issue that we were we were looking at, very much it's, it's a very aligned, um, you know, uh, it's a very aligned issue. And we, we've tried to do what we can to, you know, help support the groups that are out there that are doing this work, um, because I think it's so important. And of course, you know, restraint and seclusion happen in a lot of these, these facilities and, uh, you know, but, but beyond that, it, it's that higher level issue, um, which is all the things that are very, very often done to kids and youth in the name of behavior. And the fact that many of the approaches that are being taken, whether it's at a school a residential facility, an acute psychiatric facility, a home, uh, many of the approaches being taken around behavior are not aligned with what we know about brain science. They are not aligned with what we know about trauma. And, and if we can do better, uh, and, and we can, I mean, absolutely we can, uh, you know, we're going to make the world a better place. So, you know, all of this work, I think, is connected. Uh, and, and in fact, one of the things that, that you know, I've seen, and I'm kind of curious of your, your take on this, but... Um, from what I've seen, um, you know, when we talk about, for instance, restraint and seclusion happening in schools, uh, we can we can also align that to the people that are being restrained and secluded more often: individuals with disabilities, you know, um, black and brown children, kids with a trauma history. Um, very often, we see um, a lot of the same um, children that are ending up in troubled teen facilities as well. Um, and it may be, you know, that, I mean, I've, I've met a, a lot of uh, neurodivergent individuals that have ended up in the, the troubled teen industry, uh, you know, people with ADHD or ADD or, you know, um, I mean, do you find that as well, that there, there tends to be more uh, neurodiversity, more neurodivergence, I guess is a better way to put it, uh, in terms of people um, in the troubled teen industry? Yeah, 100%. I mean, like I said in the beginning, they're often going into financially disadvantaged areas that are already over-policed. So the number of kids that are being put in a position of juvie or foster care are higher. So then those kids are being sent into these programs. But then also, I mean, there's for, you know, kids that are neurodivergent or really any creative kid, you know, they don't fit into this typical mold of having to sit at a desk and, you know, write for 10 hours a day or whatever. And in places um, like Freedom Village, that's what you are asked to do. It's obedient. Right. So Obe- obedience obedient. and compliance. And that is the wrong goal. If compliance is your goal, you have the wrong goal. Right. Um, you know, that, that should not be the goal. Raising compliant children should not be our goal. Yes, you know, kids need to be able to get along with others. Yes, they need to be able to work with other people. But, you know, compliance for the sake of compliance uh, leads to, I think, a lot of issues downstream. And and we need the kids that ask questions and 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 come up with creative solutions and 
Um, you know, so we're, right. we're, we're often looking at this in very much the wrong way. And I think with the neurodiversity part, I mean, a lot of times I don't think parents understand um, maybe what autism looks like on its full spectrum. I mean, right. there's definitely right. an, uh, you have to be educated about right. what that looks like. And so I think sometimes kids behavior that is maybe typical for an autistic kid can be mistaken for troubling behavior, or if they're not given the proper solutions, then their likelihood of being sent away is higher because the parents in the community don't understand what's best for the kid. And then they get sent away to these programs that also don't understand. And so then you just leave a kid that has complex PTSD. Yep. Well, listen, um, we we are just about a time here. So I want to give you an opportunity if you have any any final thoughts of anything you want to leave us with? Um, of course, we're going to encourage people to check out the podcast series, and we provided the links here. Uh, and uh, you know, uh, we'll be looking forward to whatever you you do next. If there's another season or other work that you do, but any final thoughts? Anything you want to leave people with today? Yeah, I mean, definitely um, check out the podcast. Uh, follow, we warn them on different platforms. But I would also just say, um, create conversation ask questions, be curious, be curious about what's going on in your own community, be curious about people's other other people's experiences, be curious to yourself on maybe why you don't want to learn about this. You know, Um, I think a lot of change, at least for me, has come with facing, um, you know, my own history, my own past and being like fighting, looking through that. Um, So being curious about yourself. I love, um, I love that. I, you know, you know, I, I think be curious. Uh, I mean, it should be our mantra. I mean, really, I mean, from, from working individually with, with people to systems to whatever it may be, uh, curiosity goes a long way and, yeah. and, you know, assumptions sometimes go the wrong way. Curiosity, uh, you know, never does being curious and, and, you know, having discussions and asking questions, you're always going to get value out of that. So I love, I love that you've, uh, you know, focus on that. Um, this has been great. And, and I really appreciate, uh, Leanne just said, great interview. Thank you. Thank I really you. appreciate um, you coming on and, and, and joining me today for this conversation. Um, you know, hopefully people will be curious. We'll, we'll go out there and learn more. Uh, and, and certainly, I mean, if, you know, you happen to be somebody that's a, a parent and you're, you've been thinking about, uh, you know, sending a child to uh, a facility, um, be curious to your homework. I mean, you know, I think about when you said about go to page five of Google and I think, you know, even right. add the word survivor after the name of the school. And if that brings you back results, you might want to be concerned, right? Um, you know, there's things that we can do and, uh, you know, anyway, um, so this has been great. I would encourage people reach out to, we warn them for, for more and, uh, you know, thank you again for, uh, for joining us today. Yeah. Thank you so much. And thank you for all the work, um, and awareness that you bring around these issues as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, uh, I will, I will, we will let the audience go here. You can hang around for a second. Thank you everybody for joining us today. And uh, we will see you again, actually next Thursday, we have another live event. I will not be here, but with a live event will go on. Uh, So we will see you in about a week. All right. And take care, everybody.